0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Um, As you're grabbing your Bible, what I just kind of want to point out before we get to our text is we really live in a time where everything has a filter on it. Everything has a filter on it. And the reason for this often is because what we are trying to do is to make for ourselves something better than what is in front of us right now. We see this all the time. People have their food in front of them and they take a picture and there's filters, right? We're out in a a time with friends and there's a filter on that. We put filters all the time on these things, especially in social media, And it seems that what we're experiencing really in our culture is this tension that we're constantly pulled towards, uh, moving towards this hope that the future will have in store for us a greater satisfaction than we're experiencing right now. That's really the hope in this filtering type culture. And if you are on Facebook at all, you probably saw this video uh, posted um, uh, where there's an interview by Simon Sinsek where he is interviewed, and uh, the, the title of it is, What's Wrong with the Millennial Generation? Just to give you a little insight, that's my generation, those born uh, 84 and uh, older, so now you're really going to want to go watch it, knowing that that's in relation. Um, but since it compares our addiction to technology to alcoholism, he really compares these two, and he notes that engaging with technology in today's day and age triggers dopamine in the brain. It's the the feel-good receptors in the brain. And it has the same effect as booze and gambling and eating food. It has these same effects. And so it's a really powerful tool. And even what he notes that I think is really important is there's no age put on that of when that's okay. We just give that to kids and allow them to be on those social media platforms. And he goes on to explain in this video that thanks to platforms like Facebook and Instagram, young people are increasingly used to filtering their lives and presenting only their best self at the expense of the reality they're actually in. And so this is what we do. This is not just a millennial issue. This is a multi-generational issue. And this is what we do in a lot of areas. We put forth a partial and phony version of us rather than the real us. We, we put forth this partial image of ourself, self or, or maybe especially in uh, Facebook world, the best version of ourself. And in this, what we tend to do and what tends to happen is we really isolate and, and we fake what's really going on, going on in our lives. And so like I said, this is not just a, a millennial one generation problem. This is a problem for all of us and it goes far beyond social media. But it's an intriguing video where he describes the the issue going on in our culture. He talks about business culture, but really the the issue for us that goes beyond social media and beyond that video is is that if our hope and our future isn't fully rooted in Christ, then what we're trying to do is we're trying to move towards making a better version of ourselves. And so the problem then is that it's not satisfaction in Christ, it's satisfaction in self. And so what is true of scripture that we see is that the world is broken. The world is absolutely broken. And so if trying to resolve that issue, we try creating a better version of ourselves, it's really not going to work. In, in all the steps you take to try and make this shell of a body better for yourself, you're going to feel as dysfunctional, as discontent in that sexier version of you, that skinnier version of you, if your hope and your satisfaction isn't fully then rooted in Christ. And so throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, what we see is there's this type of problem that the frame in which God made in us was no longer being used to reflect the image of God. Views changed and people started really revamping themselves to fit their own reflection. And this is something that's still an issue today. It's not just a old issue of the past. And so there's a real problem going on in our culture. And I would say more than our secular culture, it's even an issue in our Christian culture. And so here's the problem but what's, what's the solution? Because what we need is the right lens in which to see everything. This is truly the solution, that we need to stand apart from this filtered world and be unfiltered as the original. And so the sentence in your notes this morning, really of what our expositional outline is, is that we're, what we're going to see and what we're gonna unpack from our text is that if we have been raised with Christ, then we need to put off what is earthly in order to walk in the new self. If you're taking notes, you can fill that in right now. If, if we have been raised with Christ, then we need to put off what is earthly in order to walk in the new self. And so we're going to read this and see this in Colossians chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some out in the uh, corners here. And also it'll be on the screen behind me. And so starting in verse 1 of Colossians chapter 3. Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So as we begin, I think what's always helpful when we read through scripture is also to go back and to see some context, because especially for us, if we're going to look specifically at a chunk of, of text, when Paul says, if then you've been raised with Christ, there's an importance there to say, well, what does he mean by that? What is he referring to? And so earlier in chapter two, really, Paul talks extensively about baptism. And so Paul talks about baptism here, especially in verse two of chapter 12. And he tells us how we've been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith, And so now as Paul opens up in chapter 3, he really states that since now you have been raised with Christ in baptism, now seek the things that are above. See, this is one of the first steps in a believer's life as they are now raised with Christ. The baptism is the next step for us that we take. And, and what we say often is that it's the outward expression of an inward change. And so after that, as Paul says, now that you've been raised with Christ, now he gives us in verse 4 some things that we should continue to seek, some things that we should continue to go after. And really the verb there, seek, implies a persevering effort. It's not an idea of how, how could we go about seeking these. Let's look and just write those down and go, at one point I should seek these, but it's a, it's a translation here of keep seeking, keep seeking. Go after, be dedicated in these things, which really implies that they're already seeking. So he's saying, continue to seek these things because God desires for us to continually seek those things that are above, not of this earth, but of above. So he wants for us to to strive for, to go after, to pursue the things that are above. And so Paul lists these things. He says in verse 2 that we should set our minds on things that are above. Now, this is an important one because the mind is a battlefield. I think often that we don't put a lot of consideration and thought into. We know the, the heart can be a battlefield, but we don't often think about how the mind is. It's a dangerous place where the enemy likes to wreak havoc, and especially in this world. And he's probably also here, Paul is highlighting that the false teachers in this time around the church of Colossae was concerned about worldly matters. They were concerned about worldly matters. They were concerned about their experiences and, and their own wisdom and their own insight. And, and so really, Paul is saying here, as you're seeking these things, look to Christ and so around them, the church has all of these leaders who are focused horizontally. And, and Paul is saying, let's have a vertical focus here. Let's look to Christ, the things that are above. And so this is also why Paul says in Romans twelve two to the church in Rome, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So don't look at what the world looks at. Don't act the way the world acts. Look to Jesus and set your mind on things that are above. One of the ways that we can do that, that helps us do that to look to him is through his word. That it's our guide for life. We can look at God's word, the truth of what it means to look at the things that are above. And then also in verse four, the first part, Paul says, Christ is your life. And Paul draws us to the significance of Christ for the believer. He says, listen, Jesus is not a piece of your life. Jesus is your life. There's a distinction there that's important. He's not just a part of your life, a piece that defines a part of your life. He is your life. That He imparts God's life, and he is the center around which we should be established. And so then in the second part of verse 4, Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, then you're a part of Christ's appearing, his second coming. And so essentially, Paul here is telling the the little church, seek to live a new life. Seek to live a new life in the here and now that is based on your eternal position and and your eternal destination. So live based on and focused on a vertical focus. Not a horizontal focus, but a vertical focus. And so as Paul says, the believer's life is hidden in God and the world doesn't recognize it. And here also, Paul reminds the Colossians that they will share in Christ's glory when he returns. He helps them see here and now what's important, but also what is to come. And so then because Christ is in us and he is our life, Paul tells us we need to put off what is earthly in us so that we can draw closer to him. Put off what is earthly in us so that we can walk in the new self. And so in this section between verses five and eight, Paul uses plural language when talking about dealing with what is earthly. And later he talks about putting, putting it off or putting it away, but he first, first starts out in verse five by telling us in, in somewhat of a, of a uh, intense language, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And I think what's often for us, especially when we think of this kind of illustration that Paul is using with the putting off of clothes and the putting on of clothes, this language is an important one in here because he's sharing the seriousness of what is earthly in the believer. So he's saying, put it to death. Don't just take it off and set it here in front of you. Taking it off is removing it completely, And so this language is important for us because here Paul's pointing us to the importance of our sanctification. Now, remember, we've talked much about sanctification in the last year, but sanctification really means to be set apart, becoming holy as our God is holy and active in relationship with him, active in the process of repentance and reconciliation in relationship with him. And what I shared with you not long ago but didn't get into much is uh, how John Calvin viewed sanctification in in really two aspects. And I think this really helps us kind of break down this process because what John Calvin wrote about was that in sanctification, there there really are two processes that that definitely have more to break down, but they're really defined by mortification and vivification. And when describing sanctification and that whole process— what Calvin first would say is, first there needs to be the killing of sin, the denial of self. And so he said, that's mortification. And then, then in that process, as you remove what is earthly, taking and taking up and, and walking in the new self is vivification. That, that it's the inner disposition and real desire to live for God in all holiness and righteousness to do his will with no thought as to our own. And so really, as he talks about mortification, it's an important part for our sanctification because none of us have arrived. None of us have reached perfect sanctification. And the sin we struggle with is deep and, and destructive. And so as we look to put to death what is earthly, we need to identify really in ourselves what's keeping us from God. Really get at the root. And this is so not our culture. This is not the way we think of things. Much like when we gathered in those circles of prayer and, and confessed sin to one another and were honest with one another. I mean, one of the things that's true, whether you're introverted or extroverted, is that the idea to confess that to someone and let them know the deep, dark secret of what's going on in your life that you don't want anyone to know is difficult. To be so real, So we share everything else on social media. We share everything else about our lives, how great it is, how good it is. We put filters on it. But could you imagine only being real on your social media platforms? Could you imagine only being real with the people you're close to? Could you imagine posting, here's here's the struggle I'm walking through right now. Here are the things that I'm deeply struggling with. And so it's important for us to to put off what is earthly that we would draw closer to Jesus. And Paul really begins his list with five things that need to be put to death. And all of them are are very true and relevant to today. He lists sexual immorality, impurity. He he lists passion and and a wrongful passion with selfish motivation. He lists evil desire and covetousness which he says is idolatry. And notice that he ends this part of his list with idolatry. And Paul here is teaching us that an idol is anything that controls you. And so let's just kind of for a second, get under the hood and, and, and ask a diagnostic question. What are you looking to for ultimate pleasure? What are you looking to, to satisfy you the most in this life? Because the answer to the question is really your functional God. Whatever you look to, whatever satisfies you, whatever you say in your heart of hearts. Man, I cannot live without that. If, if for us, it's anything other than Jesus, then our ultimate pleasure is really an idol. And so this is what Paul is getting at. He, he's saying, here's, here's the problem. It's your motivation in these things, these sins that you're pursuing rather than your Savior. And so we've talked about this before. One of the most basic biblical principles is that whatever controls and shapes your life is in effect the God that you are worshiping. And see what all of these have in common is their self-gratifying nature. That it's the response to feeling unsatisfied or uneasy or undone where we say, let me better myself. Let me fix myself because a, a better version of me will be the solution that that's going to be the solution the resolve to my dissatisfaction and, and so this is why none of our new year's resolutions work cuz we want to look skinny, skinny not skinny we want to look skinny but we don't want to be in the gym and do the hard work of feeling the pain after lifting those weights after running on that treadmill and so really it's empty we 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 don't long for health we long for the instant self-gratifying result but it's empty it's empty because this filter that we see through is a distortion of the truth and so these are the things that are earthly that is that is self-gratifying and the problem really here for us is when we see through this lens it's a self lens it's about us and so when when Calvin wrote about mortification and vivification within sanctification. I know a lot of words there. One of the things he wrote that I just love so much is, is in this short paragraph, how clear he makes a true point. He says, we are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will, therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set, set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh, we are not our own. Insofar as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. We are not our own. So Calvin repeats himself here three times in this short paragraph. And what he knows to be true here is that sanctification is not found in self, but in Savior. Savior. And so if you want to go out from here and, be, and begin to continue to work on your sanctification and that process of being holy as he is holy, at some point, we have to give up our own way. That we are not our own. We have to humble ourselves and allow God to do the work that, that often requires a very painful self-discovery and finally a heartfelt repentance. Where God lovingly strips back layer after layer after layer of selfishness. Where he trains us to be holy as he is holy, as Peter would say in 1 Peter 1. And one of the beautiful illustrations, not in my notes, but in my mind, one of the beautiful illustrations is in one of C.S. Lewis's books. And I believe it's Prince Caspian, but those uh, Lewis nerds will correct me after service. Um, But in his book, he describes a young, selfish boy on a ship. And when the ship docks on land, he goes off on his own. Very selfish character, a little snot-nosed kid, and and not liked by anyone, just very self-centered. And so he goes off into his own, and he finds this cave. And this cave is full of gold and jewelry and magnificent things. And so he puts on all these things, takes as much as he can carry. And falling asleep with a, a necklace around his neck, he doesn't wake a boy, he awakes as a dragon. And no one, I, no one can identify him anymore. No one can see because his greed has really transformed him. And this is where I think Lewis's writing is incredible because when, when this young boy Eustace grows so tired of his own way, he longs to strip that away and become what he truly was to be. And so he goes to this part of water, and if you watch the new version of one of Lewis' films, it's stupid because they take that out because the gospel is not present in that. But in that, my own little two cents, um, but if you watch the old film, it shows as Eustace is just tearing away at the scales. He's tearing away at the scales and he's ripping them. And if you read the book, Lewis goes into beautiful, intricate detail about how painful this was. But yet as hard as he would try, it did nothing. It did nothing. As as hard as he would try to rip away the scales and seek the transformation, he couldn't do it. And so the, the perfect lion, Aslan, comes in and he had to do it. And so as Lewis describes in the writing from Eustace's perspective, that Aslan, the great lion, then tore into him and and was tearing away the scales. And then he had him go down into the water and up he came transformed. Listen, dealing with your sin is a very difficult thing, but it's so important. And if you think that you're going to control it and overcome it, on your own, you will always fail because you cannot do what God has already done. You cannot do what God desires to do. And so you need to remember that it's, it's Christ who does this work. It's not you. It's not by your great might how awesome you are. It's about how awesome Christ is. And so Paul even says in verse 7 that in these things you once walked, in these things that are earthly, And I love that he says this because he's saying, listen, before you were in Christ, you were earthly. Don't count yourselves so awesome, but now you're in Christ. Now that you are in Christ, look to Christ. So don't forget this. Don't forget your stance on an an identity level that there is a process in our sanctification, but you have not arrived, but you are in Christ. And so, so Paul continues and he lists even more. And so if you heard that first list and you're going, I'm off the hook, not yet. Because verse eight and nine, Paul covers even more of what we need to put off. He lists anger and wrath and malice and slander, obscene talk from our mouths and, and, and for us to not lie to one another. And you know what's funny is, if, especially the last one is always my favorite to look at because if anyone says, man, I haven't lied to anyone, that's a total lie. So you just you just got yourself guilty right there. But Paul repeats himself again after saying this in verse nine. As he stated earlier in verse seven, remember that you have put off the old self with its practices, so you are now in Christ. And so now because you have put off the old self and are in Christ, there's no longer a divide where culture puts a divide. There's no longer division where there once was division. There's no longer races that are separated or worldviews or people types that are apart. And there's no longer a great chasm between you and the father because as Paul says in verse 11, Christ is all and in all. So now as we put that off, we need to put on the new self and the characteristics that come from that and in that. And so this is where we begin working out our sanctification in the process of vivification, where it's a a desire to live for God, a desire to do his will and with the Holy Spirit's help seek him because we're dependent upon him. And so in verses 12 through 16, Paul gives us an incredible and extensive list of things that are marked as the evidences of someone who has put on the new self. He says there, they have compassionate hearts, that there's kindness and humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, that they've put on love and that they let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts and that the word of Christ dwells in them richly. So let's look at those. The the compassionate hearts. That there's love characterized by mercy and heartfelt compassion. That there's kindness in them as God is kind towards us. That there's humility. And in that humility, as Paul would say in Philippians 2, 3, that it's in humility that they count others more significant than themselves. And then he says, meekness and gentleness. So the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. And then he lists patience. How are you doing on that one? (laughs) Think about that. So now for Paul, these attitudes are are, are only truly present when they are put into action. For Paul, it's not a list that he's identifying that these are some things we should think about, but if it's not an action, there's no evidence of it. And so really for Paul, he's saying you're not really a kind person if you aren't kind to people. You don't have a compassionate heart if you are constantly slandering people. Because really, as Jesus said in Luke 6, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. speaks. And so if you're gossiping or you're slandering about others in the church, you have a heart full of malice and you need to confess that to God and put on Christ. And I think also what is clear from Paul's list here is that this speaks of the character and life of Christ. And so really for us, how we live then is by viewing and responding to everything in light of what Christ did in our lives. And so our model for living really is a Christ-centered and gospel-saturated model, which is broken down into three parts that I've shared with you before. That our old life to new life with Christ is really broken down by three words, reject, receive, redeem. That, That we reject sin in our old life. That we receive salvation and in the redeeming we receive new life in Christ. And so that becomes then our model for living. And I've often shared this list with you, these three parts, because I think it's important and helpful as we step into every area of our life. But today, what I would tell you is there's probably four, there's not three. That first we reject. We reject anything that's not of God, that's not holy and, and godly. But we can receive and we can take in what is good and right and from God. We can take in his word, we can receive those things as is. And then there's things that we can redeem. We, we can work with and, and, and really tweak for the glory of God. And I'm not talking about doctrine. I'm not talking uh, about the word. I'm talking about um, our, our worship method. I'm talking about our, our facility, things like that, that could be redeemed for the glory of God. Remember, uh, where churches sometimes gather is in bars and clubs and, and, and convention centers and they meet in those spaces and it's the people of God gathered before God. That's a redeemable space for the glory of God. But what I think we need to understand is that when we look at things to redeem in life, we need to remember that that's God's work. That, that we are co-laborers with Christ, but we're not the ones who can rightfully redeem anything. That this is God's work. That anything we do or anything we work to redeem is by the grace of God and the work of God set before us. And so anything we look to redeem that contradicts the word of God or the character of God is not actually redeemable. And so this is where I think the fourth one comes in important for us as we walk in any area of our life is reform. Reject, receive, redeem, and reform. And really the idea of reform is to improve upon or refine or or change for better. And this does not mean that as we go out from here, it's under the glory of God. We look to improve and refine all the people. That's God's work. But we can continue to reform ourselves. That by the person and work of Jesus, we seek to refine that we would draw closer to him. And so then in verse 15, Paul tells the believers to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And this is an important tool for the believers to remind one another of their true identity. And really for us, the the Christ-centered life is a life in Christian community. You cannot have a Christ-centered life without life with his church. And so Paul makes this an important piece of his message. And in verse 16 and 17, Paul talks about the community of believers and that whatever we do in that community, we should do all in Christ and to his glory. And here's what I think is true that uh, of the Christian community, when Christ is central in our lives, we long for community with fellow believers that's found in the local church. And and let me tell you the truth of something if you didn't know. Let me tell you this from here. It's not because it's perfect. In fact, it's, it's far from perfect. And if you haven't felt those imperfections, just keep coming and you will. But we long for this and we seek this because it's the people of God learning to be like God. So regardless of how imperfect you think that may be or how imperfect you think you are, It's not about your perfection. It's about drawing together into the presence of God, drawing into relationship with him. And really, it's within this community, if this community in and of itself is Christ-centered, that we experience a church that loves the broken, that corrects the wanderer, that strengthens the weak, and encourages the disheartened. And why is this? why do we long for this? And and I would say even, why do we wrestle with this? Why do we actually long for this as a need but wrestle with those relationships? Because Christ in you has called you to love his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we're called to walk in this new self and part of that is not walking alone but walking with his church in this where our lens and our view is shaped by him. Not a horizontal view, but a vertical view. This last week as um, I was going about uh, just normal things here, uh, I had a friend stop by um, who's, a, who's a local missionary um, and uh, took him out to breakfast and he always loves to play devil's advocate. Sometimes that's great, sometimes that's not. Um, but we tend to be on two very different camps, um, especially in our theology. And we always have these wonderful conversations of wrestling together. And, and really, for me, I, the more I learn um, about theology, the more I read God's word, the more I learn about doctrine, um, theology is something that I always have to hold so open-handed. But uh, I'd go to war with you on doctrine. Doctrine. And so for us, we, we look at these things and go, here's the clear doctrines of the Bible. Here's, but here's our theology, and, and here's where we're viewing different. And really what, what I, I began to see as we're talking, especially for my friend's environment, um, how that has really filtered his view of God, and how that often can filter our view of God. So for me, in, in an environment of church and, and sharing with you and preaching to you every Sunday, my, my tendency is more leaned towards seeing Scripture as it's written to the church, the instruction, the, the, the edification, the building up, and how we need to hold firm to our doctrine and, and our theological beliefs. And, and for my friend who's seen the, some of the pain that he experiences in the young people he reaches— how that influences his view. And so I think our, our tendency is to have these filters, whether based on, on our theology, whether based on our, our social media, whether based on how we view culture, but what we, what we came to agree as we begin to see this filter of our experiences and our pain and how that tends to uh, filter then how we see everything was the reality that we need a new lens. We need a new view. And, and often there are so many things that will cause us to see a, things a certain way, whether it be our personality or our experience or our pain. But our lens and our view was intended to be shaped by the Father. And our perfect model is Jesus. And so for us, as we go out, we need to remember that if we've been raised with Christ, then we need to put off what is earthly in order to walk in the new self and to really get at the heart of the issue. And so as we leave out from here, let me ask you, are you living an unfiltered life that is focused on things that are above? Are you living an unfiltered life that is focused on things that are above? Let's pray.